Welcome to the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. Hey, Murray. I'm really looking forward to us starting this podcast series where you and I have some robust conversations around Agile and calling out some of the bullshit we see and enhancing some of the things that we believe are important. Yeah, that's what I want to do. I've seen too many podcasts that are just lightweight, sales-oriented intro things, and I want to explore some of the issues and some of the negatives and the better ways of doing things. Yep, definitely the same with me. I've listened to lots of podcasts over the years and some of them are basic 101 intros, which are great, but getting into those deeper dives into some of the things that we think are important is a good start for me. And for our listeners out there, you may notice that our accents sound completely different. That's because I come out of a little country called New Zealand and Murray comes out of a big country to my west called Australia. So let's talk about who we are then so people know where we're coming from. Yep, do we go first? So I have been in the digital industry since the beginning. I started my career as a software developer in the mid-80s. And I've been a business analyst, a project manager, a scrum master. I've been a product manager, non-technical product manager. I've been a program manager, I've been a general manager, I've had C-level roles, I've worked in digital agencies, giant telcos, financial sector, I've done a lot of contracting, a lot of permanent work, I've managed teams of 100 people and budgets of 20 million and also small teams without budgets. I started with Agile 15 years ago at a large Australian online jobs board. Agile for us was XP and we had great success with it. I absolutely loved it. I found it a far better experience for me as a project manager than traditional project management. And so I have been carrying the flag for Agile ever since. But back in those days, even 2010, it was still pretty odd for somebody to be saying, let's do Agile. And now it's all the rage. And I'm not just interested in Agile, I'm interested in digital product development, lean. So when I talk about agile, I'm, I'm often mixing in lean and design thinking and all that other, other stuff. Yeah. So for me, I started out my career working for a government agency here in New Zealand. I got a job in the accounts payable team and I quickly learned that processing invoices wasn't a love of mine, but I was lucky enough to fall into a group of people in that organization where we were replacing one of our financial systems. And as part of that, I got this love of technology, this love of software and processes. So after doing a couple of financial implementations for different organizations, I moved on to the vendor side and I spent 12 to 15 years on that side of the fence doing sales engineers roles. Our job was to convince the customer that our software would solve the problem they had. Uh, and then let the sales guy close and then get the hell out of Dodge before the consulting team went in to try and make it work. After that, I went to work for a small startup for a very short amount of time, which I loved. And from there, I moved on to doing consulting in the data and analytics space and started a small consulting firm here in New Zealand where we went in and helped customers solve their data and analytics problems. And that's when I heard this word agile. I'd seen it around probably eight, nine years ago, about 2013. Um, and I saw these hippies out there doing these agile dances and Kumbaya and saying how good it was. I was always open to experimentation. So we started 
experimenting a little bit with using Agile's ways of working for the work that we did because we knew that a lot of the way we worked as a consulting company was broken. This idea of large requirements up front, we would spend six months doing a whole lot of work to guess how long it was going to take. That's a business model of those large consulting companies, I reckon, Shane. We know that there's going to be huge numbers of changes and we know that the customer's only going to engage us if we come in with a very low price. So we're just going to price it at half what we think the cost is. And then we're going to screw them on the change request by charging 10 times the real cost for everything. I mean, that seems to be the business model for a lot of the big consulting companies. Oh, even the small ones. We talk about the consulting pyramid scheme. The most senior people go in at the beginning and then exit as fast as possible. And then the least experienced people go in and, and try and do the work. And then the people at the top of the pyramid fly back in when things go wrong. No transparency is one of the rules with that way of working because you don't want the customer understanding the lack of value they're getting. Yeah, I agree. And waterfall is actually essential for screwing your customer in that way because having a fixed scope up front, which is inevitably going to change, uh, makes it really clear what the changes are. And then if you have a really tough change control process, you can you can hit the customer for it and they have to pay for it because inevitably what's going to happen is that they're going to find that what they said they wanted and what they actually need are two different things. Yeah, so look, I think Waterfall actually has a place. I know we all in the, in the Agile world love to slag it off, but I think it's fit for purpose when the things you want to do have a high level of certainty. I've actually done a lot of Waterfall project management because I've been required to by big firms that engage me as a contractor in the past, and it works well when there's a lot of certainty i agree with you there it's just that the change management process is slow expensive and difficult everything ends up becoming very expensive i don't think i've ever done a waterfall project on the original time and budget and scope there's always been extra time required extra dollars required and some reduction in scope, not because I'm a bad project manager. I actually been told I'm an excellent project manager, but just because it's inevitable because the problem that your stakeholders thought they had often turns out to be different to what they expected. And the solution often is not the right solution. Once you get into coding, like it could be 70% right, but changes are inevitable, which is where agile, uh, and design thinking and stuff like that really shine. Yeah, a customer will normally get a number of vendors in to do a bit of a shootout of some sort, whether it's an RFP with lots of written words or a bunch of demonstrations or a proof of concept. But they're really spending a minimal amount of time to let the vendors understand their problem and then experiment and iterate on how they'd fix it. They're asking for an out-of-the-box answer. And so it's always fraud, right? It is tough for the vendor. I know I've been on the bidder side as well. You've got four weeks to put in this really complicated fixed price, fixed scope response for millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. It's really tough. You just got to make a lot of assumptions. So that process is broken, I'd say. Yeah, it's not an agile process. It's not based around inspecting and then adapting and then iterating what you're doing. So. It's, here's a bunch of words thrown over the fence, you read them, and then you come back with a whole lot of certainty. 
And that's just crazy. Exactly. It is crazy. And also it strongly favours the incumbent provider who's in there and actually knows what's what's really going on. Yeah, all of the person that guesses wrong, the person that guesses the lower number and then manages it, like you said, through change control to get to the proper number. But they've already got the work, right? So I'll give you an example of this. I was consulting to a major Australian insurance company that uh, was doing gigantic digital transformation with several of the big four consulting companies and it was going badly, but that was mainly because it was being run as waterfall with scrum, water scrum fall. And I heard a story from one of the QA managers who was telling us that they had a problem and the vendor quoted 30 days to fix the, the defect or the problem. It was a missed configuration. The senior technical people thought that just couldn't be the case. And they were going on a course run by the vendor to learn how to configure the product. And one of the guys made the configuration change during the course in an hour just after he'd learnt it. So there you go. How long did it take? Let's say two hours. How much did the vendor quote? 30 days. That's the sort of thing you can see in these sort of arrangements. Yeah, I'd still want to understand what else they had estimated as effort into that. If it really was 30 days worth of effort for that one hour change, then that's abhorrent. But if they were factoring in all the QA testing, the release, the update all the training material, maybe not 30 days, but you can see that there's a lot more effort to, to get a done, done product out the door than just making that one config change. No doubt they had no idea what it was, so they probably said it's got to be 30 days. By the time we factor in all the analysis, the design, they're going backwards and forwards, our management time, your management time, arguing over whether it's 30 days or not, going through all of our different teams, one after the other, then going through all your teams, one after the other. Maybe they just had the experience that nothing's less than 30 days. So they just said 30 days. Yeah, or maybe they fixed price and fixed scope, the initial delivery, and now they're just clawing back profit out of the work. Oh, well, they had. It was a very legalistic type of situation. It's interesting that when we talk about Agile, we often focus on the team delivering, how we can make them image. We often miss the agility of the organization. How fast can we get those contracts through? What happens when we want to make a change that costs time or money? Those kind of things often people don't focus on, and I think they're just as important. I totally agree with you. A lot of people I encounter think that Agile is Scrum, which is not. It's not that Scrum isn't Agile. Scrum is an Agile hammer in your toolbox, but Agile is a whole workshop. And you can do Scrum at a team level while doing waterfall. I see a lot of water Scrum fall and nothing really is changing in the organization, except the team is doing stand-ups and sprints. So when I work with a new team, I will often get them to start by adopting some of the scrum practices. I think they are light enough and easy enough to understand and to start to experiment with, and they add value, but it's not the final answer. But to your point, I often see a team start off, you know, start to adopt some of the agile ways of working and some of the scrum patterns. And then they really love it, right? They really start to rock it. And then they hit the organizational knowledgeability 
where actually they start to question now, well, why can't we make these other things as easy or as streamlined or as changing as, as the way we work? And they just hit the ceiling, this barrier when they get outside their team. I find Scrum is a really good starting point for teams. It's a way for teams to learn how to manage themselves. The retrospectives and the reviews, I think, are the most important part of it. I've found with teams where I've implemented Agile that they have started to perform really well. But as you say, they can improve the things that they are in control of, but pretty soon they're going to be coming up with blockers that are outside their control within a couple of months that they're going to be hitting those sort of blockers. And that's where they need management support and they often don't get it. In fact, managers can often be quite negative when teams raise issues in retrospectives about the the way things are organized outside the team. One that piqued my interest as we were talking, if you're an external vendor and you're working with an organization that says they're agile, but they're throwing an RFP document over the fence with written words for you to answer and then give price certainty. What do you do about it? What have you seen that people do to reduce the risk without walking away? Have you seen any good things? I've yet to find a good example of an agile contract that doesn't just say time and material because that's obviously the most agile of all because you could change anything with the relevant cost and consequences. But have you seen some good ways that vendors can engage with organizations to A, have a contract, but leave a bit of agility in there when they're doing the work? Yes, I got stuck in the contract writing when I was a general manager at a digital agency. We moved to agile ways of working to save the company. It was in big trouble due to over-promising and under-costing. I ended up having to spend a lot of time with clients and procurement people negotiating contracts. So what I ended up doing was saying, we're selling you a team for a number of sprints. And we think that this work will take X sprints, like let's say 10 sprints or 20 sprints or whatever. And the goal is to achieve these business objectives, but the scope is going to be defined one sprint at a time by agreement between us as the vendor and the client represented by the product owner. So the scope will vary depending on what we learn along the way. And we'll only agree on the scope for each sprint at the beginning of that sprint. And then we'll review it at the end. There's a price of X dollars per sprint for a team. And we will work with you to get the best business value out of the time and money available. But we're not going to be extending the sprint to meet last minute scope items. That's the way I did it. And the procurement people actually accepted that. Although they did want to know what the deliverables were. So I said, well, each sprint, we're going to give you a sprint plan and we're going to complete software with tests and we're going to have completed user stories and management reports and working software. And I said, oh, okay, good. I like that idea because when I'm coaching uh, data and analytics teams, we use a, a similar approach. So the idea that you have a bunch of work that you could do that gets prioritized. One of the differences with data and analytics teams is our product owner tends to change over a number of iterations. So we may have to deliver a pricing profitability model with a dashboard. So we will typically get a product owner out of that financial marketing team. And then we may have to 
and deliver some HR leave dashboards and then data to support it. And so we'd get a product owner out of the HR area that's really focused on on the value of that. So our product owners kind of come in and out and we've got the same problem, which is, well, how long do they get? It's almost a contract. We use the same technique where we say, well, actually as the product owner, you're allowed to use three iterations to get as much work as done as possible. And then we're going to move on to the next product owner, the next highest priority for the organization. And that time boxing, that ability for the product owner to know they've only got this amount of time really helps them make value decisions and trade-off decisions of what they're going to get delivered and what they're not, because they know that there's that fixed wall coming at the end of that term. So I thought I kind of heard that same pattern coming through with the way you were doing it. That's how I dealt with delivery contracts. But before then, there's got to be some basic analysis design and scoping. I came up with an initiation approach. So two weeks of customer research design and prototyping, and then two weeks of architecture, estimating, planning, and prioritizing to really size it and get a preliminary product backlog. Yeah. So, so as you started talking, I heard sprint zero, which I think's bullshit. But then as you keep talking, I, I heard groom the backlog, which I love. So I think people have to be careful that they're doing the, the grooming of the backlog at the beginning, because that's important. They're not doing a sprint zero, which is, you know, six months of everybody just randomly building some stuff because they think they might need it in the future. So for me, I, I don't know about you, I still see a lot of people talk about sprint zero and I'm not a great fan of it. So development is very expensive and it takes a lot of time and effort. It's very complicated. So I think developers need to, to be effective and efficient need to have a pretty good idea of what they're going to do before they start doing it. And certainly you need that before you can say, this is going to take about 10 sprints for a team of 10. So I think that there's a need for project initiation that helps the client build up their business case. And from the client side, I need that to go and ask for money. So I'm hearing a bit of project words coming through. The business case one is one that's always been a struggle because there's a tendency for lots of planning and estimating and guessing what's going to happen to go and get permission to do that work. But then somehow our stakeholders treat that as a promise a promise of what will be delivered for that amount of money. So we have to balance out having a, a quick guess up front versus that behavior of lots of analysis, which will never be used to get, you know, an estimate that we get held to, even though we all know it was a guess. Yeah, I agree with you, Shane. I've run waterfall projects where we've spent nine months doing analysis, design and planning for a $10 million project big, big telco waterfall methodology. They were helpful to get the money and stakeholders on board, but it wasn't that accurate. Things changed a lot. I felt there was a lot of waste. The problem I have is when people say, oh, you said planning, therefore your waterfall, therefore you're saying 12 months and that's all waste. There's something in between a month of planning with a subset of the team for a big project. I think that's a very helpful. And just have no planning at all, it's just, it's just not viable. 
don't get me wrong. I'm not saying no planning, just like I, I never say no documentation, which is another one of the little things people try to use when they go down the agile path is we don't do documentation and that's bollocks. We do the right documentation at the right time. And it's the same with planning. When a team are walking into a piece of work that has been well-groomed, they are much more effective at understanding what that work is and how they're going to deliver it. And so you're right, it's that balance between the right amount of planning up front that adds value because walking in with no planning is a nightmare. Nobody actually knows what they're going to work on and spend a lot more time discussing that. But also that 12 months of planning is not great either. So it's just that balance of the right amount of planning up front. So there is this idea of three amigos, the, the idea that actually there is a small team of people that right at the beginning do some light planning to set the scene and the vision and the prioritization and, and get that ready before the rest of the team start onboarding for the delivery of it. And I've seen that as a good way of balancing out the cost of that planning. See, here's the question. How many developers do you need? And how would you know that if you didn't do any planning? Yeah, so this is where I have a preference for what I call the pipeline. Uh, and it comes back to that vendor conversation. So my view is outsourcing the work to somebody else is a project behavior. Having a team of people that can do work as part of our organization is an agile behavior. And so we form teams of people that can work together to deliver something. They have the T skills to do all the work themselves. And then our conversation now is, okay, squad A are coming free because they've finished the last piece that they were asked to deliver. Is this work that's within their domain? Can they deliver it? Yes. Cool. Here's the description of the work as a team. What's it going to take to deliver it? How long is it going to take the team, Shane? Because I have a marketing launch I've got to do. Yeah, so what we're doing is we're putting artificial constraints in place. I have picked a date for that marketing launch based on pulling something up my bum, and now I'm going to tell the team that they have to make it. But I have to have it launched on that date, Shane, because that's when our big annual sales and marketing conference is, and also I know my competitor is going to be launching something at that conference. Yeah, so you then pick a team of people and tell them to start, and then you start de-scoping, you start trading off what you're not going to get to meet that date. Because what we know is scaling teams on the same piece of work is hard. If we have a team of five, and then we add three other teams of five to work on that same product, that actually gives us a real problem from a scaling point of view. It doesn't make us a lot faster by adding more people. We get a whole lot of other problems we have to deal with. So while we often have to do it, we should ideally plan in advance to say, we have this marketing launch, it's really important we have this date. Okay, what's the light amount of planning we can do up front to give us a guess of how many people or how many squads for how long, and then let's start it on time. What tends to happen is people leave it to the last minute and then expect everybody to move heaven and earth to deliver this thing in an unreasonable time frame. I agree with nearly everything you said there. I actually really like the product model where you have a permanent cross-functional co-located client-focused team or product-focused team that has everybody you need to deliver a product, including all the business and marketing people. So the user experience designer, product manager, and an operations analyst, and all the business people some project management supports, make sure they get the money they need and as the developers and everybody else. 
I'm a big fan of bringing the work to the team and have the team focus on a product or a client or maybe a market. But I know that it's really difficult to get business managers to approve a budget for something or a time for something unless you're able to give them some envelope. Now, that doesn't mean a fixed scope. And this is where I think a lot of agile people start immediately going, oh, you're saying you want an envelope, so that means it must be fixed scope. No, I'm a big fan of variable scope agile projects that have a fixed time and cost because that's actually really easy. It's actually much easier to deliver an agile project on time and on budget with a set of goals if the details are, are variable which they should be if you're doing something like Scrum. Yeah, so again, you use that project word. And so with the project word comes a whole lot of behaviours that I see when I deal with large organisations. It's this idea that we fund projects, we don't fund teams to consistently deliver value and then we just prioritise which values next. We see projects as beginning and ending, yet most teams are building something that has a life, it has to be maintained, it has to be reinvested in especially in the software or data space. I agree with you. I just don't think projects are going away and not ever. They will never go away. Although products and permanent teams are great, projects are not going away. I think it's bullshit to say that projects are going away because they're not. So you're saying that the behavior of organizations that can be deemed as a project isn't going away or we're just going to keep using the word project for pieces of work. Where are you coming from? I think this is stupid to say, oh, we don't have projects anymore. We just have large epics. Well, you know, come on. It's, you're treating them exactly the same way. So I think terminology is really important. I think terminology is where a lot of us get held up when we're talking to each other in the agile world. And so again, I wouldn't use the word epic because for me, an epic has a whole description definition which probably doesn't match yours but i'm with you i just don't like the term project because it comes with so much baggage so i think a term needs to be used which talks about a piece of work being done but it can't be bound to that concept of a project because of all the baggage that comes with i don't agree i think that you can have agile projects with a variable scope the project management industry has been talking about this for a long time there's something called rolling wave planning. There's something called adaptive planning and evolving and evolutionary planning. Rolling wave planning is pretty much the same as Scrum. And continuous adaptive planning is pretty much the same as Kanban. The project management community has actually been quite good about bringing in agile ideas and making them much more part of project management. The Empire State Building was built with a rolling wave planning approach, quite Scrum like. It's always been possible to do projects that way you just never saw them very much yeah look i i agree that a lot of the agile patterns that we adopt have been around for years i mean you mentioned doing xp and we adopt a lot of the xp processes we adopt a lot of the lean thinking because it has value we adopt the kanban board when we do scrum what's your view then on agile project managers when somebody's actually advertising on job board things says we want an agile project manager because it that, that gets my goat up. You're confusing me. Are you running a waterfall or are you having an agile way of working or are you trying some kind of hybrid? And if you're doing a hybrid, what is it, right? I don't have a problem with agile project management. I think that's completely fine. Some things have to be fixed in a project. It typically has a fixed time and a fixed budget. And 
Agile works very well with fixed time and fixed budget if you have a goal and you allow the scope to vary through a product backlog. I've done lots of it and it works well. Business managers want that and they're not going to stop wanting it. And if you say, we don't do that anymore, they'll just say, we'll get somebody else. So you've got a choice here. Do you want to do Agile the right way within those kind of constraints or do you want them to go off and choose some idiot who's just going to pretend and actually do water scrum fall because that's what will happen. So I think if I'm in the client's shoes, I don't have a problem with saying to my business stakeholders, yeah, we can do a project for you, but I want to do it in an agile way and then do it properly in an agile way. I think that's fine. But I think what happens though, Shane, is that there's a really large amount of fake agile water scrum fall out there, but that is coming from a mindset problem. So there's a lot of project managers who are very controlling, hierarchical. They just don't trust their team. And those people are sometimes scrum masters. I've met scrum masters who are just horrible because they've just carried over that traditional project management mindset. But I've also worked with quite a lot of agile project managers who genuinely have a servant leadership mindset. So it's really that mindset that is the issue, not whether you're working in a project or if you're working as part of an ongoing product delivery stream. Yeah. So I think you know it there for me right at the end because I was not on the journey uh, until the last bit where you said that you've seen project managers who have behaved as servient leaders, enabled the team to get the work done and unblock the barriers that the team strike on a regular basis. And if we look at the definition of a scrum master, that's what's written down. So there are people that have behaved uh, as agile leaders for their whole careers, working in a, in a project or in a waterfall construct. But there are also people that have been taught that command and control behavior through that waterfall construct and then try and apply it and when a team's working in an agile way and that's where we cause the problems i think when i was at a digital agency we were working with a, a large company and they employed a agile project manager who was a certified scrum master and this person spent their entire time trying to micromanage us in a traditional project management way which was completely unnecessary. What we wanted them to do was to liaise with the rest of the organization on our behalf and make sure that all the other teams involved, like the ops teams and various interfacing teams were able to provide us with the interfaces and environments and other things we needed. And this person just didn't see that as being their role. And they were a certified Scrum Alliance Scrum Master, but they were just a traditional hard-ass project manager who saw their job as giving the vendor a hard time and the Scrum Master certification didn't make any difference. But on the other hand, I've worked with some brilliant servant leaders who were project managers. So it's not the title that matters. It's the mindset, it's the philosophy, it's the frameworks that you use. That's what matters. Yeah, and that's why Agile is not Scrum. I think we get into these religious wars of project versus Agile. Whereas we often see some agile behavior in projects, and then we'll often see some project behavior with agile teams. You know, Scrum was a project management methodology. Ken Schwaber wrote a book called Agile Project Management with Scrum. It's released in 2004, and he describes Scrum as a project management process. 
and he uses that sort of terminology over a hundred times. So first of all, he says it was a process and now they say it's a framework. And he said it was all about managing projects and now they say it's about products. So that's what he said then. Now he's saying something different. So the scrum people will say that it's evolved and that's good. It's good that it's evolved. But you know, that's where it started from. Okay. Well, I think we've done our time. So let's close this one out. We can talk about that more another time. There's a lot of strengths in Scrum and a few weaknesses. And I really like Scrum Band. So we can talk about that another day. Yeah. So look, summing up for me, I think we get stuck on the terminology. We get often stuck on the word, not the behavior. Uh, and I think that needs to change. We need to be able to look at how people are working, understand the principles they're applying and the patterns they're using, and then figure out how we can help them do it better by iterating rather than saying we're waterfall or we're project management or scrum or lean. I think they all have values when used in the right way. So the, the most important thing is to call bullshit when people say those things are good or bad. They're just things we can use to work in a better way. What about you? I think there's some ways of working which are definitely much better than others. I really hate water scrum fall. I think it's bad. Do waterfall or do agile. The mix is probably worse, I think. What we're trying to do today is just learn a bit more about each other. One thing I forgot to say at the start is I have a small consulting company called Evolve and I help people, help managers with all of this. Well, look, I think we're going to be good. I think we both come from different backgrounds and have different experiences, but on the, on the same philosophy and the same path. So I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Thanks, Shane. Excellent. Catch you later. That was the No Nonsense Agile podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help with Agile, contact Murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.